So this morning we're going to be talking about fasting. Now, I know one at Super Bowl Sunday, so bad choice. Uh, and also I would say, you know, realistically, I think fasting's probably about the same level of popularity as Leviticus in the American church. But we know that all scripture is valuable and we're called to certain things. So before we dive into that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you just for the opportunity to gather corporately as your body. Lord, I thank you that you are here, that you are working here even at this moment. I pray that as we uh, meditate on your word, that you would be revealed and that you would work in us. In your name, amen. So before we really get into what is fasting, I'd like to just sort of lay out some things that I think are important of things we should avoid or problems that often are communicated when we talk about fasting. So those, those reasons are, one, manipulating God. Now, no one would ever specifically tell you that's what they're saying, but when, when, it communi- when fasting is communicated as something to where it's like, well, I want to let God know I'm serious, so I'm going to fast. <laughs> that's called manipulation. And yet that's often how, how fasting is communicated. As if it's this thing that if we do it, God will then all of a sudden like, uh, oh, man, they're great. I guess I should, I should let them. I should acknowledge what they're praying for. There's no point in scripture where we merit what God gives us. He gives it because he's generous, because he cares for us. Two, similar sort of vein, trying to please God. Uh, we fast because we're trying to please God. God's already pleased with you. He looks at you. You have put on Christ. He sees his son. You don't have to please him. And the same with that, getting favor from God. You don't need favor. He looks at you and he sees his son. You already have favor. So as we look at fasting, those are not reasons that we fast. What is fasting? When we talk about fasting, again, often communicated, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to fast from my Xbox. I'm going to fast from my favorite TV show or that type of thing. That is not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is at its core avoiding specific food, and the level depends on what we're sort of doing here. So it's always about food. Fasting is always about food. Don't get me wrong. If you have a, a wrong relationship with your Xbox or TV show or whatever else it is, then correct it. But that's not fasting. So summary of of what we're going to get into with fasting today. Fasting is about a development of the relationship with God. Fasting is about life and death. Fasting is a privilege. I know. Exciting, right? Fasting brings us more into the new life we already are a part of. In coming more into the new life, we are more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Number five, fasting is about allowing the spirit that dwells in us to work in our lives and transform us. So fasting has all of these facets to it. Now, when I started thinking about fasting, what does it look like? What does it mean? How do we even start with that? I ran into some interesting uh, discussion over this. The early church fathers, Tertullian and 
Basil the Great or Basil of Caesarea, they both think that fasting for us should come in Genesis 2, when we're told to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that is at the heart and the core of what fasting is, which has major implications because one, fasting isn't something about happens post-fall. It happens before the fall. We are called to fast. But then the question is, why? What's the point then of fasting? And I think really what we needed to ask is, is why are we supposed to not eat as humanity from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what's strange about that, if you really think about it, is Genesis 1 tells us we are made in the image of God. And by Genesis 3, we're told that God has the knowledge of good and evil. So if humanity is supposed to image well, we should have the knowledge of good and evil. And realistically, if you had a neighbor who didn't have the knowledge of good and evil, and he invited you over for a barbecue, I'd like you to come over and have a barbecue with me. You're not sure whether or not you're having a barbecue or you're going to be the barbecue if he lacks the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> so one, let's go back and start at Genesis 1. God creates the world. Here are the chaotic waters, and God speaks, let there be light. And there's light. And God names the light day. And he sees that it is good. And then Genesis, two, uh, you know, the, the day two comes. And day two, he separates the waters from above and the waters from below. And the, the expanse in between he calls the heavens. And he doesn't tell us it's good. And then Genesis 3 comes along. Or, I'm sorry, day three comes along. And God says, let the waters or the land come up out of the waters. And he names it. And he calls it good. And so there seems to be this tension that is being created where God is naming. And he's also acknowledging when things are good and when they're not good. And so when we, again, come to this tension that's created, we're supposed to avoid the knowledge of good and evil. Why? And if we go to Genesis 2, and we look at what, set, what it said when it says to avoid this, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day of eat, you eat it, you shall surely die. If we just stop there, we sort of miss the context because the next thing the Lord says is, the Lord says, it is not good that man should be alone. So he tells him, you shouldn't know the knowledge of good and evil by eating of the tree. But then he says, it's not good that you're alone. So how is man getting this knowledge? He's being taught it through a relationship. It's not something just to be grasped as if instantaneously you get this thing. It is to be a relationship that is the thing that, where this comes from. And so then God invites man to name the animals. He's starting to function into that image of God relationship. He is being slowly changed and transformed from what he was into something more. But it's through a relationship that that happens. Humanity chooses not to do that and instead insists on grabbing that fruit on his own. He wants, that with, he wants the knowledge without the relationship. And so he dies. 
he eats of the fruit and he dies. And so then the tension that is created through the rest of Scripture up until the New Testament is, is that we have a mostly dead human running around. If you're fans of Princess Bride, then he's mostly dead. <laughs> so th- this, now this human that we walk through as we're constantly following through the rest of the Old Testament, he is alive. There's that tension that's created. He's alive, but he's dead. And so then when we get to that point and we see Genesis 3, at the very end, God says, the Lord said, behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. He's, he's got the thing, but the problem is, is how he got it. Now, lest you reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it and live forever. You can't have humanity trapped in a state of death eternally. So we can't eat from the tree of life. But we go back to Genesis 2. It said all of the trees are good for him to eat, including the tree of life. So now all of a sudden, because he wouldn't fast from the one tree, he's forced to fast from another tree. (laughs) So we have this tension that's created, and humanity now has to leave the garden. They leave the garden, and they are in a state of death, and they continue to die until they are fully dead. And the creation, now we're wondering what's going to happen, and we move downwards, and creation gets worse and worse And it spirals out until creation actually starts coming apart at the seams and returns to its chaotic state in the flood. And God allows humanity to experience what they have been bringing about, which is the destruction of creation itself. So here we are in the floodwaters again. But God doesn't leave it there. He continues to work and, and move. He brings about a new creation The dove is now hovering over the waters. Humanity comes back out onto the land. And God says, be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1b. And so we're like, oh, hey, that sounds familiar. We've seen this before. Humanity is giving an invitation to move to something. But if we look at the rest of what it says, it says, starting at verse 1 of Genesis 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. So if you stop right there, that sounds very familiar to sort of what we were told in Genesis 2, where he's like, all of the fruit of the garden is for you. But the next verse says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So here again, there's this fasting that has to happen. Don't eat this thing. Don't seek life from something that is not life. Because there's only one place that life comes from. It is from a relationship with God. Nothing else is truly life-sustaining. And so in the same way we see in Genesis 2, this tension where humanity can choose to be grown, to be matured, to be transformed into what their calling is, or they can defy it. Humanity here is now given a greater responsibility over not only just the food of the fruits of the tree, 
but also now the animals. But as you're eating it, don't try to think that somehow you're getting life from this because there's only one place that life comes from. It's only from the God who made you and created you. And so here we are again with this this tension that's been created. Life and death. Fasting and developing that relationship where the thing really comes from. Or the alternative. So we come to... Exodus. Again, creation seems to be coming apart at the seams. Starts in the waters. It moves to the land, the the plagues. They move from the waters to the land to the skies. Things are not staying in their designated areas. The frogs and the gnats, the locusts, they're all just swarming everywhere. Hail's falling from the sky. Darkness has covered the land again. And instead of creation of new life, the firstborn are dying. And so creation has come undone. And we come through another chaotic waters. Israel's now brought through the waters and out the other side. And wouldn't you know it, but sure enough, there's still going to be this tension created between what you eat and what you don't eat and the importance of that. And so, surprise, surprise, we're going to go to Leviticus. Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. If any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So again, here's the same sort of command that we're seeing coming out of, the, out of the flood. Don't eat the blood. Life is in the blood. And it's not for you. Because there's only one place that life comes from. But we get another tension that's created. So now God's presence is in the center of, this, of Israel. So not, not only are you not supposed to be searching life from someplace else because there is the life-sustaining source in your presence, in your camp, is life. But at the same side, now all of a sudden uncleanness, the things associated with death, are a problem. Don't eat of the things that are associated with death because there is only one source of life and you cannot approach the dangerousness of God and his life in a state of death. And so don't eat of the animals that are associated with death. So for instance, Exodus 21, 28. When an ox, now an ox is a clean animal. So we know it's a clean animal. But when, what it says is, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh, flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable Because now this ox that is clean is associated with death. It's causing death. The same thing could be true if you had some really violent sheep who started attacking people. I feel like less likely, so it covers an ox. (laughs) But it's the same deal, right? So there is a 
tension that is created. You now have God's life-sustaining presence in your camp. Don't go eating death. Don't be associated with death. Because there's only one source that is your life. You know that weird story where Jacob wrestles in the dark? The narrator hops in at the end of that story. And he says, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. If you read that often, you just go, What? But I think, you know, from what we've done now, I think we can come to this in a different way and recognize that God's touch, God's very presence, God's very relationship is life. So he touches Jacob's hip. So Israel recognizes that we are not to be seeking life from anything but one place, from God's presence, from the relationship with him. And so we will not eat of that hip socket because we will not, just like we don't eat blood, try to get life from someplace else. There is only one place that life comes from. And so we go farther into Exodus, and Moses is now up on top of the mountain. And he's meeting with God in the, ten, in the Ten Commandments. Or, you know, he's being given the Ten Commandments. So Exodus 34, 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. To be in God's presence is so life-sustaining. That, they don't, that he doesn't eat food and water. It's not that he will never need food and water, but in God's presence, there is such a life source that that is the only place that life truly comes from. So when he is standing there in his presence, he needs no food and water. And so we go in the same way that we see that the next time a prophet is called to meet with God up on a mountain. Now, Elijah has way less confidence in God than Moses does. And so when things don't go quite the way he thinks they should, he throws a fit and would really like to just rather die. So 1 Kings 19. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying... It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a tree, uh, under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food. 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And so like I said, you know, in the case of Moses, Moses has such great confidence, he goes up in this thing. Elijah's like throwing a tantrum. And God says, I will sustain you <laughs> for this journey to come and meet with me. 40 days and 40 nights on, a, on a, a hike. Whatever he was given is, again, the whole point is we are to see that there is only one place that life comes from. <laughs> We can search for it from someplace else. But when we fast, we set down everything else and we say the priority 
the priority is, is that no matter how confused I get about where my life comes from, no matter how many times I'm convinced that, man, I'm darn hungry right now, <laughs> my source of life is from only one place. And so we come to Jesus, and all the Gospels want to make this point, which is they see Jesus, and he comes to the waters, and he comes through the waters, and the Spirit descends like a dove on him, and he now has the Spirit filled. He is filled with the Spirit. Because what Jesus is about to do cannot be accomplished without the Spirit. The two together are what, make, what brings this about. But Luke creates this really interesting tension that I think is extremely valuable. Luke 4, 1-2, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So he goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit. But when he comes out, Luke 4, 12 through 14, and Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. So he goes in filled with the Spirit, but through developing that relationship. I know that seems a little strange, but that is the way the Trinity seems to work. It still develops. There's, the, there's a growth, a maturity, that there is a, um, a moving from glory to glory that even the, spirit, the, the, the Trinity itself is experiencing. That there's a tension between filled with the Spirit and moving in the power of the Spirit. That Jesus sets down something and says, I am giving this relationship the priority and so in that fasting, he achieves what exactly no one else up to this point has continued to do. They're always trading in food <laughs> for that relationship. How often do we keep seeing people creating that exact tension? I get confused about where my relationship and my life comes from. And so I trade it for food. And that is what Adam and Eve do. That is what the Israelites are constantly doing in the wilderness. Here is God. He has brought them through so many things, but they don't trust him. They don't believe his character is what he says it is. And so they keep trading food for the relationship. We need water. We need food. We need meat, not just the stuff on the ground. There's always this, this tension. And so Jesus comes through that and he demonstrates what it means to recognize that there is only one source of life. A couple helpful tips about fasting. Purely experiential. Not somebody else's experience, not mine, right? Don't make it about how long you are going. I'm goal-oriented. I like to achieve things. And I like to prove that I can do stuff hard, hard stuff. Instead, make it about what God is leading you to. The why behind the fast is more important than how long you are fasting. You're recognizing that your life comes from the Creator. But if you lose sight of that and just sort of get to the point where you're going, ha-ha, look, I've made it farther than I did before, or I made it farther than somebody else I know... <laughs> we've missed the point. 
Not that I've ever done such things. <laughs> don't make it about your health. You'll often, again, hear people talking about fasting as if it's, it's good for you. It's healthy. Great. That's not why you're doing it. The fasting we're talking about is acknowledging that God is the life and sustainer of you. And there is no other source. Don't let that misalign you. doesn't mean there won't be health benefits, but that's not why we're doing it. Fasting, but not eating, so you're not eating, but not spending time with God. I fasted, but I didn't actually make any effort to develop the relationship. It is about the relationship development. That is what we're doing. We are setting aside something that we desire for something greater than that. I think the last one's also one that can quickly get there, which is people will start to say, well, you know, if you're, if you're fasting and you're really developing that relationship, you won't be hungry. Luke 4, 2b, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. <laughs> Just because you're fasting and you're acknowledging that God is the source of your life doesn't mean that you may not experience some discomfort. But we do it in spite of that. We do it because we recognize where that source and life is coming from. All right, I'm going to read you a quote. I mentioned uh, Basil the Great earlier. I'm going to read a quote from him. I just think he, the early church's meditation on fasting is, I think, the, church, the, the current church would be wise to learn from the early church's wisdom on fasting. Moses fasted 40 days and refi- received the divine law, but it was for naught, as the people ruined the result of this fast with one night of drunken debauchery. Esau threw away his birthright for a single meal, the glutton. By contrast, Hannah conceived the prophet Samuel because of fasting. Likewise, Samson's Samson's parents conceived him in fasting, and he was nurtured to manhood and great strength through the fasting regiments of the Nazarites. Elijah received his beatific vision of God after fasting, and he and Elisha performed great exploits related to their fasting and austere lifestyles. The three Hebrew children, three Hebrew children, we're talking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just so we're clear on Hebrew children, escaped the fiery furnace because fasting had turned their bodies into inflammable substances. Likewise, lions could not eat Daniel because they weren't able to sink their teeth into him. Fasting is like sharpening the edge of a man by dipping his body in iron. It makes him tougher than lions. They couldn't open their mouths against the saint, so when he was thrown into the den, he taught the lions to fast. Isn't that a great quote? But I think what what he's getting at is this, that fasting if we're really doing what exactly, we go back to Genesis 2. God wants that relationship, and in so doing, he is transforming humanity. We don't start at a spot and just stay at that spot. No, he's, he's moving us from glory to glory. He is transforming us from thing to thing. So he teaches humanity how to function in the garden so that he can, the garden can grow outwards. It's not so the garden can just stay there and be nothing more. In the same way, he calls us to the relationship, not so you can just be stuck in one spot, but so you can be transformed from glory to glory, from thing to thing, in his life, in his spirit. Full life is received. 
So fasting is about a development of the relationship with God. Fasting is about life and death. Fasting is a privilege. Fasting brings us more into the new life we already are part of. In coming more into the new life, we are more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Fasting is about allowing the spirit that dwells in us to work in our lives and transform us. Questions, comments, concerns? I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, in the passage where I think it was the disciples of John the Baptist asked Jesus, you know, why their disciples fasted and, and Jesus did not. Yeah. I think it was at that time that he made the comment about the wineskins. Mm, sure. And he said, you know, you can actually make the rent worse. And I, I think he was referring to that if you're fasting for the wrong reasons, you can actually, you know, make a spiritual tear that will be worse than if you weren't fasting for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I would say I think there's something there. I think there's also something about the fact that there's a tension between the fact that humanity up until the point of Jesus is dead and so fasting has a different, it slightly functions slightly differently than post-Jesus when the Spirit's poured out on us. Right. So Jesus is filled with the Spirit and go, walks in the power of the Spirit. Before that, the Spirit is only given in sort of very small sort of doses or exper- you know, experiences for the moment. But humanity now, what we, we live in is different. And so that relationship, he's already in, a, in us in a life-giving source in a way that was before. So. If you're not walking in the Spirit in your fasting, yeah. it can produce... Up. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. To the point, uh, there is no point where um, fasting just to be trying to manipulate God, like I said, which is often the case. And I think, yeah, Jesus is totally driving at that when he's talking to the the um, Pharisees that that's the case. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples, did somebody bring you food? He said, I have food that, <laughs> right. that you can't, mm-hmm. that you don't know of. Right. That to me is really, I think, the crux of what maybe you're saying and has helped me as you know, when I try to pass. It's like, oh, there's food that, that isn't uh, physical food. Yeah, yeah. So when Jesus is standing. And gives wisdom to mm-hmm. And then the second other scripture I love too is the one uh, where this kind of only comes out with prayer and fasting, mm-hmm. which is the development of that uh, completely unseen depth of communion with the Father right. Jesus had. Yes. That his disciples didn't have yet. Yep. And yet that apparently developed more as they began to minister, you know, in Acts. Right, right. They were moving in, a, in, in that realm after the baptism in the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Oh, Right, yeah, so like when Jesus is standing, stand, yeah, standing, talking to the woman at the well, and then the, the, the disciples come, yeah, Jesus is like, I already have food, like, I have already have my life, there's something greater that, than that type of thing, so yeah, that one, um, and then yeah, when Jesus is ta- saying um, to the disciples after, in Matthew 17, I think it is, um, it's right after he co- the transfiguration where he goes, like, this only comes out with, with um, prayer and fasting. Um, that again, it's like, it, it is about that development of the relationship. Any other reason to fast is just trying to manipulate God. Yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> well, attempting to, right? You know, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. <laughs> Anyone else? All right, let's close. Lord, I thank you that you and you only are our source of life. May we not lose sight of that. Thank you that you have given your spirit to us, that we would develop that relationship, that we would lean into that, that we would not pull back, that your life is the only one worth pursuing. In your name, amen.